Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. At 4.45pm precisely, GMT, on 15th February 1894, the grounds of Greenwich Park, London, home of Royal Observatory, and a clock we will discuss later, are shaken by a resounding boom. Staff at the observatory recalled a sharp and clear detonation, followed by a noise like a shell going through the air. They peered out the windows in trepidation, attempting to work out what had just happened. A park warden and a group of students ran towards the epicentre of the blast, where a solitary young man lay dying. The young man, who died not long after in a local hospital, was identified as 26-year-old Frenchman Marshal Baudin. Baudin was a member of the Autonomy Club, a collection of anarchists who had largely escaped the more authoritarian regimes on the continent and who, once in Britain, either became radicalised or found kinship in the group. To pin down what constitutes an anarchist, well, their beliefs could run the gamut from communism to libertarianism and all sorts in between. But the unifying themes were the rejection of authoritarian figures and hierarchies, a distrust of all current institutions, and a wish to destroy society so they could build a new society based on their particular beliefs. Often they hoped to achieve this through terrorist acts. The Autonomy Club had come to the attention of many in 1892, when a bomb-making facility was rumbled in Walsall, northwest England. That Baudin would expire of his injuries was a given. When inspecting the scene, his blood, flesh and bone left a 60-metre blast radius. That he hadn't intended to blow himself up was assumed. When he left Westminster that day, he was carrying a considerable sum of money. Inspectors took this as evidence he was planning to skip the country for the continent. It has always been assumed he lost his footing while nervously walking a zigzag pathway to his intended target, and on stumbling, the bomb went off. His intended target has always been a matter of speculation. It probably wasn't the well-guarded naval facility that was the observatory. Chances are, at most, Baudin may have blown a hole in their fence, perhaps killed a guard or two, or a crowd of Londoners. On Thursday afternoons, the park was quiet, but the 24-hour gate clock on the grounds, a clock which had counted the time with deadly accuracy since 1852. To understand why someone might want to blow up a clock, we have to consider the concepts of noble myths. The time hasn't always been exactly as it is now, and that for most conveniences that improve our lives, there is often a corollary effect which makes our lives worse off. First, time itself. The Earth is in constant motion in a couple of ways. One way is that it spins on its axis in a direction we call east, at a speed we measure as either a thousand miles per hour or sixteen hundred kilometers per hour. The mile comes from an estimate of a thousand paces by a Roman soldier, in Latin the millipasses. A kilometer is a thousand meters and a meter is one ten millionth the distance from the equator to the North Pole. 
A 24-hour day is a close approximation of the time it takes for Earth to spin one time on its axis. It actually takes approximately 23 hours 56 minutes to fully spin, but close enough. The other way we move, of course, is in an elliptical orbit of the Sun, which gives us our year, but we'll skip the specifics of that. We get our divisions of hours, minutes, and seconds the way we do, because 5,000 years ago, the Sumerians worked with a duodecimal, a base 12, and a sexagesimal, a base 60 system, rather than our preferred decimal, base 10 system. The Babylonians kept base 12 and 60 alive in their mathematics and astronomy because it suited what they were doing. The Greeks brought the concept back to Europe in the wake of Alexander the Great's conquests, 336 to 324 BC. They used those systems, particularly for navigation and trigonometry. Going on knowledge that the world was spherical, Hipparchus of Nicaea broke new ground when he divided the globe up into 360 degrees, a derivation of 6 times 60. The Roman Ptolemy of Alexandria further developed this language by subdividing the lines into minute, small parts, minutes, and the smaller second, seconds division. He divided by 60 both times. In the 16th century, our technology was good enough, finally, to make clocks that could tell the time beyond the hour. Very first mechanical clocks in the 14th century had only one arm, for the hour, and we borrow the term minutes and seconds from Ptolemy of Alexandria via thousands of years of precursors, sexagesimal framework and all. We really could have divided time by any number of ways, by 10, 15, 20, 200, and it really doesn't matter. But this is the common story we adopted, simple as that. It had a history and a commonality in its favour, and as such it gave us a common, understood framework to work, to plan, to explain, develop from. It followed a framework to direct others by, and so it was a kind of noble myth, if you will. If you put aside all the scientific advantages of measuring to the second and beyond, the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe being one of the first to work in such small increments. And look at the lives of ordinary working folk. You can see how an accurate conception of time may have brought several advantages in organising your life outside of work. But when coupled with an increasingly industrialised world, it also enslaved a lot of people to its incessant tick-tock, 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 for one, as production moved away from a model with an artisan, making one item from start to finish, then doing the next one, to a mass production model where maybe a dozen people made one part only, over and over, focus changed on how quickly a person can make that one thing. To a business owner this is efficiency. To a worker this presents a scenario where an artisan, once at liberty to take their time over a varied task, now had one simple, perhaps boring task, and could find themselves having to account for every second if deemed to be swinging the lead. In 1748, when Benjamin Franklin offered the advice, time is money, it was clear the criteria for what construed a good job had tipped in favour of efficiency. In Bourdin's time, time and productivity experts like Frederick Winslow Taylor had codified your every second into a science. His method, 
commonly referred to as Taylorism, carried the official brand scientific management with good reason. While Mr. Taylor suggested workers needed regular breaks so they could recharge and work harder overall, he also had every task analysed to the smallest increment. He introduced the concept of soldiering to the workplace, the belief that a worker will do the minimum they can before they get into trouble. Believing soldiering to be the greatest evil with which the working people are now afflicted, he advocated the use of slave-driving managers to crack the whip. While Marshal Boudin himself may have felt a slave under the shackles of a factory owner's obsessive drive to be most productive, let's not ignore productivity is measured against time. Then in minutes and seconds, on newfangled accurate clocks. Factory workers were slaves to time as much as to a hectoring supervisor. In the 19th century, this adherence to time took more of a twist. As marine chronometers were more in use on ships, to more accurately assess longitude, and people travelled through time zones more, as telegraphs and then later telephone lines made our world smaller, and as railways required more uniformity of time zones, clocks across the country and then the world began to follow a more common pattern. Towns can no longer have one town on their own time, and the next town on theirs, a few minutes different. And while this seems a good thing, and I would argue generally it is, to many an anarchist like Bourdain this would have seemed just another way central governments enforce their will upon the people. Only a few years earlier, on November 18, 1883, the USA had finally managed to get their railways running on a common time scheme, following the British who had done so back in 1847. Prior to this, the USA was trying to plan their burgeoning railway system around 300 local time zones. Only a few years before the Bourdain incident, on November 1st, 1884, the world would officially assign 24 time zones at the International Meridian Conference in Washington, D.C. Greenwich Mean Time, based on this 24-hour clock in a London park, where years later a young man hopped aboard a time-shackled train and disembarked with the intent of killing time itself, that Greenwich Mean Time suddenly became the beat we all danced to. I have little doubt the clock was Marshal Bourdain's target. To Marshal Bourdain, the clock wasn't a convenience or a wonder. The damn thing was enslaving the lot of us. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. Love to see you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.